It is a joy to be with you today. I invite you to open your Bibles to John's Gospel, John chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 6 through 18 today. The face of grace. When someone does us wrong, when we get messed over, when our rights feel threatened or violated, when our convictions are ridiculed, a, a common response to that is either to blow up or to clam up, right? And when we blow up, we say things like, well, I'm going to get even. I'll make them pay. And when we clam up, we say things like, I'll, I'll keep as much distance as possible. That's pre-pandemic thinking, but you get the idea. There. I'll live as if they don't exist. Now, of course, a more difficult course of action, a, a harder approach is to look for the source of the problem and try to correct it, you know, to show concern, to, to call, to write, to attempt steps at reconciliation, to pray for the offending party, to let go of resentment. But hey, that type of uh, thing doesn't come easy, right? Our willingness to forgive others doesn't come naturally. It's not easy. Why? Because it's the opposite of our Adam and Eve way of doing things. We've got a dysfunctional sin condition. We've got some messed up spiritual DNA, you see. You know, if you've ever done precepts or perhaps Bible study fellowship or some other type of inductive Bible study on your own, you know that often the biblical writers use repetition. They use repetition. They use repetition. <laughs> they use repetition to communicate the main idea in a passage, right? And in our passage today, again, John chapter 1, verses 6 through 18, I think it's significant that the term grace appears four times. In his book titled, What's So Amazing About Grace? Philip Yancey writes, what grace means is that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more no amount of spiritual exercises and renunciations, no amount of knowledge gained from seminaries and divinity schools, no amount of crusading in behalf of righteous causes. And what grace means is that there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. No amount of racism or pride or pornography or adultery or even murder. What grace means is that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love, end of quote. Now, please hear me. Please understand, we know from both the Word of God and our own life experience that God blesses our obedience, does He not? And conversely, He righteously responds to our disobedience, often in ways that bring us real pain, suffering, and loss. But here's the deal, Lucille. His underlying attitude of love towards us never changes, amen? It remains the same even when we screw up big time. Let me tell you something. I am one of the older, if not the oldest, missionary. <laughs> I just turned uh, 64. Uh, for this old broken-down preacher from Santa Monica, California, that's great news. That his love is enduring. You know, when I was trying to figure out what my central theme was going to be for the message today, some words from a Don Henley song came to mind. You. Aging baby boomers will resonate with that one, right? UNT grad, Lindale, Texas, one of the founding members of the Eagles, along with Glenn Fry. A Don Henley song came to mind, and 
He wrote, I've been trying to get down to the heart of the matter, but my will gets weak and my thoughts seem to scatter, but I think it's about forgiveness. Forgiveness. Even if, even if you don't love me anymore. Now, my friends, in that song, Henley was talking about forgiveness in the wake of love lost. But in this sermon, we're talking about forgiveness because we're lost. In other words, forgiveness as an act of God's grace, pardoning us in a rescuing, delivering, liberating from the eternal condemnation of sin, rebellion. Forgiveness as an unmerited favor of God, giving his monogenes, unique, one-of-a-kind only son, the ultimate gift in whom salvation is offered to all. So here's what I get from this passage. Bottom line, divine grace has a human face. That's our main idea this morning. Divine grace has a human face, and this is seen when we consider the messenger, the mission, and the message. Again, the messenger, the mission, the message. I'm old school, we like those alliterations, right? Manic would be the fourth M. No, just kidding. This is all in the introduction to John's gospel. But before we look at that, see how the text puts a, a human face on divine grace. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King. Lord, when we begin to get our head and heart around who you are and what you offer, as you have described and promised in your word, we can be confident that despite all our stuff, as members of a fallen race in a fallen place, you accept us. But not only that, you love us, and you made this love known to us in the person and work of your Son. In Him, we see that divine grace has a human face. And so right here, right now, we ask that the, the dark places of our character will be illuminated by the light of life emanating from the living Word, the eternal Son of glory who put on human flesh. Through our dependence and cooperation with your Spirit, increase our capacity today to feel and express affection for both believers and non-believers you bring into our life. Through our dependence and cooperation with your Spirit, increase our willingness to forgive people who have hurt us. Help us to learn to let go of offenses and grievances. And because you have freely forgiven us in Christ, change the condition of our heart so we are motivated and inspired to extend unconditional forgiveness to others. These petitions express our desire to live in a way that makes you happy and helps us live in a way that makes you look good, to live in a way that makes us happy and healthy and holy. So we bring all our, our messy stuff to you. We bring it to you in the name of the one who said, concerning those who killed him, Father, forgive them, because they don't realize what they're doing. Amen. Well, in John's gospel, to sum it all up, the purpose statement can be expressed like this. Jesus is demonstrated to be the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one of God, in order that people might believe in him and obtain the blessings of eternal life. That's the the big picture of John's gospel. Now, in John 1.1, 1, 1, we're introduced to a person called the Word. And there are three key elements here. First of all, he was in the beginning, which means that before anything else came into existence, the Word existed. And according to verse 3, he, the Word, brought all things into existence. Well, secondly, we see here in the 
outset that the Word was with God. This means that in some sense, the Word is distinct from God and the Word was God. Anyone need an ibuprofen yet? All right, let's press on. Now, the only way the Word could be with God and at the same time be God is for the Word to be God the Son rather than God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. Now you know why someone once said, hey, try to explain the Trinity, you can lose your mind. If you deny the Trinity, you can lose your soul. Now in verses 4 and 5, John describes the Word as being the life which gives light to men. A light that shines in darkness, but a light that isn't overcome by darkness. So to tie it all together, to bring it into focus, right out of the starting gate, the living word is presented as coexistent with God the Father. And he's presented as the, the causation, the divine agent, causing all that there is, as well as a source of spiritual light. And you see, this brings us to verses 6 and 8. A section, again, we're calling the messenger. The messenger. And in verses 6 and 7, we see that a divinely appointed witness testifies to the fact that divine grace has a human face. The text here reads, A man came, sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that everyone might believe through him. Now, if we put on our our prophecy glasses here for just a moment, and oh my gosh, things are coming into focus more, more clearly now. We, we put on our, our prophecy glasses here on. We see the words of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 5 in our messianic rearview mirror. Listen to how these words describe someone who is making preparations for the arrival of God. It says, a voice cries out, in the wilderness clear a way for the Lord. Construct in the desert a road for our God Every valley must be elevated and every mountain and hill leveled. The rough terrain will become a level plain, the rugged landscape a wide valley. The splendor of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it at the same time, for the Lord has decreed it. You see, my friends, in ancient times, a herald or a forerunner would be sent out to clear the road of obstacles and repair potholes prior to the arrival of a king traveling on that same road. And so what this passage is saying is that a, a forerunner will get things ready for the arrival of the Messianic king. And in Matthew 3, 1 through 3, this same Isaiah 40 passage is applied directly to John the Baptist, or as we say here in Texas, John the Southern Baptist, because he preached in Judea, right? The Southern Kingdom. Hey, it's a pandemic. Work with me, folks, all right? Anyway. <laughs> Matthew writes, in these days, in those days, John the Baptist came into the wilderness of Judea proclaiming, repent, metanoia, change your mind, for the kingdom of heaven is near, for he is the one about whom Isaiah the prophet had spoken, the voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. You see, God used John, he used John, to introduce messianic light to a spiritually dark world. And in doing so, he also used John to inaugurate Jesus' ministry. Now, if you look at verse 8, it's clear that John the Baptist was merely a supporting player in all of this, right? He's not a, a big deal here. It says he himself was not the light. He came to testify about the light. And John was okay with that. 
I mean, seriously, he was the ultimate, it's not about me, it's about him kind of a guy. Continually, he emphasized, I'm not the one to be pointed to. I point to one beyond myself, who is life. In fact, when you get right down to it, I'm not even worthy to untie your shoelaces, right? That's a paraphrase of verse 27 in this chapter. You're praying, perhaps you're saying, all right, well, swell, groovy, but you know, what's that all got to do with me, John? I mean, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We need to have, you and I need to have that same kind of attitude in our ministry that John had in his ministry. Like John, we find our true significance in pointing to someone beyond ourself, to someone who has complete and utter total significance. And here's the deal. Understanding that, believing that, responding to that doesn't mean you're a worm. Doesn't mean you're no good. Doesn't mean that you suck at everything. What it means is that you have a great calling to participate in his life, his plans, his purposes. Yes, you and I have significance. As creations of God, we have intrinsic worth and value. But the principle, the goal here, is to find our ultimate significance in him, the one who is transcendently significant. Why? Because he's God in human flesh. Divine grace has a human face. My friend, the key to humility is not thinking how weak you are, how foolish you are, how sinful you are, that's, that's not going to make us humble. In fact, focusing on that stuff can actually produce a, a perverse form of pride. We're kind of messed up that way. <laughs> it's part of our messed up spiritual DNA. The real key to healthy humility is preoccupation with Jesus. Amen? The more you're consumed by His greatness, the more you get your eyes off yourself. And when we're less focused on self, we're less likely to get duped by some two-bit prosperity theology or political narrative or persecution mindset. We're less likely to get suckered into a, an entitlement mindset. We're less likely to settle for second-rate pleasure. We're less likely to eat cotton candy when we could be eating steak. So going back for a moment to our central statement, what are we saying today? We're saying that divine grace has a human face, and this is seen when we consider the testimony of the messenger, his testimony. But secondly, this face of grace is also seen when we consider the mission, the mission. Look at verses 9 through 11, and first we see the reaction to the mission is what? It's rejection, right? It reads, the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, he was in the world, and the world was created by him, but the world did not recognize him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not receive him. It's interesting, you know, the light has really kind of a, a hand-glove relationship with the mission. Uh, they go together, like uh, peas and carrots, as I said in Forrest Gump. Remember that one? <laughs> the, the light exposes the sinfulness and, and the spiritual need of all people everywhere. And this sets the stage, you see, for the offer of new life from the light. The light is true. In fact, if we take off our prophecy glasses and now put on our, our Greek glasses, you say, John, we got a lot of glasses going on here. Yeah, well, I got, got some grass, glasses for Christmas. You see, you got, these, got the prophecy glasses, we got the Greek glasses, and got some Hebrew glasses for good measure. So if we put on our Greek glasses, we see that this is something that's true, not only in the sense of 
corresponding to the reality, you know, the, the way things actually are, but also true in the sense of being the highest form of truth. What John is saying here is that this light is not just genuine revelation from God, it's ultimate revelation because it is God. You see. Now, the, the reason for the rejection of the light is that our minds have become darkened by the fall, by sin. And this is why light shines on us, but outside of divine intervention, outside of childlike humility and dependence, we miss it. We don't see it. The blindness of rebellion makes light incomprehensible. So the point of verse 10 is that the world's characteristic reaction to light is one of indifference. It's one of apathy and even hostility. We know what that's like. We've been there. We've done that. We, we see that today in our politicized, polarized culture. Now, in verse 11, we go from general revelation to specific revelation. Look at the phrase, his own. This, of course, refers to the Jewish people. Tragically, the very group of people that the word was uniquely and intimately connected to because he actually became one of them in large part, not entirely, but in large part rejected him. But with that being said, I think there are some valuable lessons that we can learn from this. Concerning Messiah, Isaiah 53 two says that he grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot and like a, a root out of parched ground. What is this parched ground talking about? I think it's, it's an image of the, the spiritual desert, the barrenness, spiritually speaking, that, that was characteristic of Israel in the first century. You see, even though God's covenant people had become very careful to, to try to correctly follow all of God's instructions for doing life, and that's a good thing, even setting up a lot of extra stuff to help ensure that no small details would be violated, there was often an external conformity that lacked a corresponding internal reality. We know what that's like, religion without relationship. We've been there, we've done that. This is, truth be told, our natural bent. We get religion, as we used to say back in the day. We get into all these external things, but often it's trying to be outside in instead of inside out. It's, it's, it's practices rather than an emphasis on relationship. It's a proposition instead of a person. You know, you can measure practices, but you, you can't quantify relationships. That's, that's messy. <laughs> We're not comfortable with that. And that's why I think it's good to remember divine grace has a human face. It reminds us first and foremost that our faith is relational. Now, verses 12 and 13, we go from, um, I'm trying to understand the clock here. It's, uh, it's, it's counting upwards, is that right? Kind of the opposite of Cape Canaveral when you're waiting for the rock to go. Oh, we'll get it together. Second hour, this is the dry run. Come back the second hour. No, just kidding. You don't want to do that. We're in a pandemic. Anyway, just, all right. <laughs> Look at verses 12 and 13. We go from light in the world rejected to light in the world received. It reads, but to all who received him, 
Those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. Children not born by human parents or by human desire or husband's decision, but by God. Now, in addition to the fact that not everyone rejected the word when he came, the key thing to get here is that to believe in him is to receive him. Again, if we put on our our Greek glasses for just a moment, this is called apposition. It's when two things are being called equivalent without a connector. To receive him and to believe him are being equated as one and the same. Reception here has to do with personal trust. In other words, it's not merely getting on board with something because it seems to make sense. To believe his name, to believe in his name means to accept the revelation of who Jesus is that God has given. Now, since that revelation includes the fact that Jesus died as a a substitute sin bearer, taking our place, belief involves reliance on him for deliverance instead of ourselves, not just believing facts with my head, but exercising trust with my heart. It's one thing to know you need something. It's another thing to receive it. There comes a point when we simply choose to take a gift, but that's not always easy. Often we have to come to the end of our resources to realize we don't have to clean up our act to come to Jesus. He actually offers himself to people who know they can't clean up their act. You can have a a come-to-Jesus moment wherever you're at on that spectrum, that continuum. To receive his gift is simply to let him in, transferring our trust from self to Savior. When we do that, since penalty is paid in full. Had two salvations this month online. You know, the corona haven't been able to get out like I'm used to, but been doing some stuff online. Had two salvations this month. It's pretty cool. Divine grace has a human face. This is seen when we consider the reaction to the mission, the mission of the offering of new life. Well, thirdly, we see the face of grace in the confession of the message, the confession of the message. Look at verses 14 through 18. Now, verses 14 and 15, in order to treat our sin condition, the word had to give himself a skin condition. Did you catch that? There's a sin condition. The word gave himself a skin condition. John writes, now the word became flesh, took up residence among us when we saw his glory the glory of the one and only full of grace and truth who came from the Father. John testified about him, shouted out, this one was the one about whom I said, he who comes after me is greater than I am because he existed before me. Oh, this is good stuff. Seriously. The word who existed equal with God before anything else came into being became a human. The technical term for this is incarnation. It means to clothe or infest with flesh or or bodily form. Theologically, this refers to the time when the, the second member of the triune Godhead began to dwell in a human body permanently. You say permanently? Yes, permanently. The basic elements of human nature, mind, will, emotion are everlasting. Plus, after his resurrection, how did Jesus appear? As a man right? And he went back to heaven. How? As a man, did he not? And he will return and reign as a man, but not just any type of man, a Jewish man, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Now, here's where it gets fun. He had a nature 
that was truly and fully divine, and he had a nature that was genuinely and completely human. So what we're talking about here is someone who is 100% God and 100% man. Let's muddy the waters a little further, shall we? <laughs> Neither nature lost or transferred any of its essential attributes to the other. What does this mean? It means that both natures remain complete and unchanged. It means both natures maintain their separate identities. Human nature always remained human, and divine nature always remained divine. You say, John, how does all of that work? That's a great question. You have some great people on staff. They'd love to talk about this with you in more detail. <laughs> Hypostatic union, they're all over that one. <laughs> For now, here's the bottom line. The incarnation was the greatest possible expression of God's grace to humankind. It was the best way to communicate truth accurately to human understanding. Now, verses 16 through 18, we go from the Word becoming flesh to the Word being received. The Word in human skin and the Word in human hearts. John writes, we have all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came about through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only one himself God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known. Oh, doesn't get much better than this. These verses are the climax of all that John has been leading up to in his introduction. Up to this point, we've been told what? The Word is a person. He's eternal. He's a member of the Godhead. He was there at creation as the Creator. He is distinct from God the Father, yet intimately in fellowship with God the Father. He is the source of light and life. He is the one to whom John the Baptist bore witness, foretelling of his appearance. He is the one of whom his own people rejected. But those who receive him become children of God. And so now, for the first time, verse 17, we're told who this person called the Word actually is. He is Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the confession of our message. And notice here, continual waves of grace. Divine surf crashing on the, the battered shore of our lives, lavishly. My friends, the more we understand about the work of the pre-incarnate Christ, the work of his creation, the work of his redemption, the work of his indwelling presence, and the sheer joy, the joy associated with all of that, the more we begin to get divine grace has a human face. It's a Jewish face. A shena punim, as we say in Yiddish, a beautiful face redemptive face. As we wind down, I'd like to slightly change the Don Henley lyrics I shared with you earlier. I've been trying to get down to the heart of the matter, but my will gets weak and my thoughts seem to scatter. But I know it's about forgiveness. Forgiveness. Especially because, especially because he loves us forevermore. Do you have the certainty of that forgiveness today? Have you believingly responded 
to the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. Before you and I can truly appreciate and appropriate that good news, we first need to be in agreement with the bad news. The bad news is you and I are sinners in word, thought, and deed, and by virtue of the fact that we are physical and spiritual descendants of Adam, we have all come woefully short, incredibly short, of God's standard of absolute moral perfection. The penalty for sin is death, not just physical death, but also spiritual death. Eternal separation from union and fellowship with God, coupled with conscious physical and emotional suffering in a location so horrific, the Bible refers to it as a lake of fire. But the good news of the gospel, Messiah died for us. He's our divine Passover lamb. Divine grace has a human face. And so, so through faith, trust, reliance, dependence upon his finished work for us, we can be saved, delivered, rescued, and even liberated from the penalty power and ultimately even the presence of sin. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment? And perhaps today for the first time, you have recognized your need to trust Christ as Savior. And if so, I want to encourage you, in fact, I implore you to, to pray with me these words silently to yourself as a genuine expression of your faith in Him, a recognition today of your need of Him. Would you pray with me to yourself if this is true of you? Dear God, I know, I recognize that I am a sinner, and I believe that Christ died for me and rose from the dead. And so right now I trust Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, as my Savior, as my Deliverer, as my divine Passover Lamb. And I thank you, I sincerely thank you, for the forgiveness and the everlasting life you have offered for all who rest solely in this finished work. My friend, if that prayer was a genuine expression of your faith, a sincere desire to be right with God, would you just take a moment to, to look up at me at this time, to make a connection with me at this time? This is truly a, a holy moment. I know that sounds like kind of a, a trite cliche, but it's true. This is a, a holy moment in the sense that you're playing for an audience of one right now. The scripture says anyone who is thirsty, spiritually thirsty, can come and freely drink of the water of life and never ever thirst again. Praise God, I see, I see some raised heads there.